the Apostle John recorded these words in Revelation 4, 8, 5 through 10. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, they without ceasing sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne the four elders, the four living creatures, and among the elders a lamb standing as if he had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the spirits of the saints. They sing a new song. You 
are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. The the nine-mile run district is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a historic stream valley. It's so beautiful. Once it was renowned as the most beautiful part of the entire Pittsburgh area. But then for a half century, just imagine this, for a half century, that beautiful nine-mile run area was used as the main dumping ground for the industrial slag that came out of Pittsburgh steel mills. So that by the 1990s, the stream there was no longer flowing at all, but it was completely contaminated. And at that time, three artists, of all people, had a vision for it, and they took the proposal to the city council... And their proposal, though risky, was one that was adopted. They proposed that that nine-mile run area, now called a wasteland, or what they sometimes called a brownfield, be redeveloped. And the risky part was they weren't going to just tear apart what had happened with the slag. They were actually going to take what was there, even after the abuse, and then re-envision it, re-engage it, reclaim it. They had a magnificent Vision. I think, do you see a picture? Do you have a picture of the way it originally, what it became? Uh, it's just a beautiful thing. So the, those three professors put together uh, a team from the university. And you can think about that maybe happening at a place like uh, Caltech. It, it had a broad range of studio artists. They may have had to go to another school. Uh, scientists, <laughs> historians, landscape architects botanists, urban planners, and engineers. Just mark that down. Well, since that time, 18 years have gone by, and that beautiful, beautiful place has been developed. Uh, There were countless snags. There were obstacles that made them think it's never going to happen. But, But these artists had a clear vision, and they would not give up. And what eventually happened was they turned that awful slag into a, um, a place of wonder. Now, I've shown you those pictures in some of my past sermons, but one of the things I didn't talk to you about was that they had a greater vision that that area would actually become a residential area for about 1,200 people. And many people were especially skeptical of that ever happening. So I have another picture. This is the area they had envisioned for the... Um, it really looks bad when you have a gray, snowy day like that. But after 18 years, I want you to see that area now. It is now viewed as one of the most desirable places to live in the city. And I just tell you, this, to me, is just a wonderful story of reclamation and redemption. And it brings us to the beginning of Advent. Can you believe that? Because I want you to keep that picture in your mind. Uh, Because God's world, when He created it, was also a beautiful and wonderful place. But then, after centuries of the slag of human sin being poured out into this world, everything by this world, about this world, has become something different from what it should have been. It has lost so much of its beauty. But God is the ultimate artist. God is the ultimate artist. 
He is the great creator and he loves this world. And he loves the people in this world. And I'm telling you, he has a reclamation plan for this world. And that reclamation plan is something that is found. This first Sunday of Advent is called Prophecy Week. Uh, that so many of the prophets that you look at in the Old Testament, they were able to get, be given a little bit of a vision of what this reclamation project of God would look like when he was done. I put together just a few of the things that they foresaw. That when God's project is done, no children are going to be harmed in his world. Isaiah chapter 11 says, even the cobra won't harm them. And I'll tell you, the guns in schools won't harm them either. When God is done with his world, violence is not going to exist anywhere in this world. In our cities, in the Middle East, in anywhere in this world. Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, When God is done with his plan, just envision it. Captives will be freed. No need of prisons. The blind will see. No need of hospitals. Death will be no more. No need of mortuaries. Isaiah 61. And especially this week. When he's done, the brokenness of of nations and of people will be over. And in so many places like Psalm 72, all people groups of the world will know that there was one God and will bow down before him. So, when Jesus came and entered into this world, he started that plan into motion. He declared, Luke chapter 4, he went into the synagogue and declared that he was the one to whom all of those prophecies were pointing Then, of course, Jesus lived the life we should live that none of us has. But then everybody saw him dying on the cross, and they thought, is this going to work? But then afterwards, he was risen. Hundreds of people saw him. And this summer, do you remember, we were looking in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God was poured upon all those people groups at Pentecost, and the excitement began to happen. For those who followed Jesus... Many of them thought that immediately God was going to finish his beautifying, his reclamation plan. But then we come to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. We've been looking at it for months here at the church. And by the time, decades have gone by since that day of Pentecost. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, not as much has happened as they thought would happen. Even the great apostle John uh, was in exile. He was in prison on, a prison, uh, on an island prison. Um, the one who was in charge didn't seem to be this good and holy God who had a great plan. The one who seemed to be in charge was this narcissistic emperor in Rome. And he especially set his sights on followers of Jesus because he wanted all people to worship him. That's what the emperor wanted. And Christians wouldn't do it. So already by the time you get to the book of Revelation, Christians were being killed. And, and there were churches We we saw seven of them over the past months, didn't we? Uh, Churches which are supposed to be outposts in communities that show the world that God is and show the world what God is like. But those churches, do you remember as we looked at them, most of them were small. Uh, They were often oppressed by the the people around them. And even, even the churches that were there, they seemed to be spiritually weak themselves. So by the time you get to the end of Revelation 3, it looked like this great, reclamation plan of God was never going to really happen. And that brings us to today, Revelation chapter 4. And at that point, John has a second vision of Jesus. He had one in Revelation 1, do you remember? This time Jesus comes back to John and he says, come up here. 
You've been looking at things from a limited perspective. You only see the things the way... We, but but you've got to come up here. And the veil that separated our vision of seeing God as He is and seeing the world from God's perspective was pulled aside for John for just a moment. And what he saw was pretty majestic. It was awe-inspiring as he saw these, these creatures flying around that seemed so majestic and powerful, and yet even they had to cover their eyes from the one who was truly majestic, truly perfect, truly holy, and who was sitting on the throne, namely God Himself, who is the one who is the emperor over all emperors, the king who is over all kings. And what we see, as we get into Revelation chapter 5, where I want you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to today, is we begin to see how God is going to take things from where they were there and where they are now to where they will be when Jesus returns and brings this reclamation project of God to a completion. Now here's what I want to do. If you have your Bibles, Revelation is pretty hard to walk through. I just want to walk through this text, see if we can sense the majesty. You heard Wendell reading it earlier, didn't you? It is one majestic scene. So let's begin with that scroll. There's a scroll there, and what I want you to see is that the God who made this universe does have his vision, and it's a vision that he is unveiling in this world. He has a plan for the world that is unfolding. Look again at verse 1. So John said, I saw in the right hand of this one who sat on the throne, I, I saw a scroll. And that scroll had writing on both sides. And it was sealed with seven seals. Now, one of my favorite things to do is to read. And yes, you can imagine I like to read theology books and Bible commentaries. But I also like to read mysteries and thrillers. Now, when you read a mystery or a thriller, and they get to be really intense, I hate to tell you that I do this. Sometime I open up to the very back. And I don't want to find out the story. What I want to find out is if my favorite character is still alive at the end. If my character is not alive anymore, I don't, I'm not going to read it anymore. I think life is too short. I'm going to read another, I'm going to read another book. Any, anybody else have those, that psychological damage in you that your, past, your pastor does? Well, I'll tell you that what the Bible does is it gives us a glimpse of the end so that you and I can live now with confidence, no matter how hard the now might be. Do you see it? Now, in the kind of literature that the book of Revelation was revealed in, uh, it's called apocalyptic literature, when you have something written on a scroll, what, what is on that scroll in this kind of literature is the future as it is recorded by the one who holds the scroll. Now, I, I put a picture of one of those. It's, it's not a very good one, but it's one that you can find in a museum in, in uh, Jerusalem. A scroll was usually 32 feet long. It would almost have always have only writing on one side because it was almost impossible to write on both sides. Um, I won't go into the reasons for that. But, but when you would find somebody writing on both sides of a scroll, it would usually happen for one of two reasons. Either number one, the person was really poor and couldn't afford a second scroll. Or second, there was something in that story that is had that is so self-contained, so important, that this person wanted to have it all on one scroll and then to have it sealed so that nobody could see it until that person was ready to have it unveiled. 
Now, given that the one who was sitting on the throne was this majestic God who had made everything, I doubt that the reason that he wrote on both sides of the scroll was because he was poor. So I I think the reason was this. He was saying this. Everything that is of importance about the world that I love, about my plans, about my purposes are here. Evil in this world and injustice, evil will be judged, justice will be done, goodness will be rewarded, and eventually you may look at the world and you say, God made this world? How could, how could a good, powerful God make a world like this? He said, eventually you're going to see this world and you're going to see that everything in this world declares my glory. The world as we're going to see it will, will demonstrate the justice and the love and the forgiveness and compassion of God. And God is saying, it is all here. It is all here. You see, when, when this scroll would then be complete, it would be rolled up and it would be sealed and you notice here, it was sealed seven, seven times. It was sealed perfectly. It was going to be kept safe until the God who has a plan for history says, now the time has come. Now, I put myself into John's shoes. Uh, John was a good Jewish man. He, he knew what the Old Testament prophets had said. He couldn't see the, the future clearly, I'm sure. But he did know this that the evil in this world God had declared someday is going to be judged and done away with. It's going to be gone. And everything is going to be new. But in the situation he was in, in a prison on that island with all the problems that the churches were having, the question he must have had is, how will God do it and when is he ever going to do it? Do you ever ask that when things are really hard? I mean, is God really there and is he ever going to bring something good out of this mess? Then, verse 2, John sees this mighty angel with a mighty voice. And you know it because uh, when he speaks, all creation hears it. All right, I've got a microphone here. Did anybody know that? I imagine that some of you could hear me if I didn't have a microphone in in this massive place. Uh, But I'm telling you, the rest of the universe isn't going to hear. And what this angel is going to do is speak so loudly, so distinctly that all creation, every part of created order would hear him. And this is what he shouts out. Who is worthy to walk into the presence of this kind of a holy, perfect, eternal God and walk up side by side and take his scroll and open it? Because you've got to see in, in this kind of literature, when a scroll was opened, the events in the scroll would would begin to be unfolded. And yet what we find is that there was no one worthy to open the scroll or even to peek into the back to see, you know, what was going on there. Which brings me to my second point, the tears. And the point I want you to know is sometimes it is hard to live well now even when we believe God has an end in mind. Sometimes we have to be able to just trust even when we don't see. Look at verse 4. So John said, I wept and I wept. And the language is so intense. I wept bitterly because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even to look inside. So the question is, why did John weep so deeply and with such agony? I mean, people often ask that. And I'll tell you, it's not... 
not just because he was nosy and was upset because it's unsatisfied. I wanted to know what was in that scroll and God didn't tell me. John weeps because he understands the meaning of this scroll. Being in the hand of a good God that he trusted and that scroll not being opened. Are you with me? John knows that if that scroll is not opened, then God's purposes to restore beauty and goodness and justice in this world, that God's purpose to end pain and death, God's purpose to judge and to eliminate evil, he says it's never going to come to pass unless that scroll is opened. John knows that. If God does not have this scroll opened and doesn't intervene in history, the, rights of this, the wrongs of this world will never be righted. The unending suffering that we read about every day in the paper will be anything but futile. He knows that people who have been abused and misused, if that scroll isn't open, will never find justice in this world. And really he knows also that a sinful person like himself and like all of us will never find salvation. I was talking about this with a group of pastors Tuesday. And several said something like this. Uh, Greg, we personally agree with this message that there is evil and God has to judge it. But when you try to preach that to our generation, nobody's going to resonate with that message. They'll just shut you down. I'm just looking to see if anybody's kind of resonating right now. At first, inside, I reacted against that, but I know they were right. Because it just seems to be a part of our culture. Listen to me carefully here. It's just hard for people in 21st century America to believe that there is absolute evil and something that is absolutely good. We've come to a point of thinking that there is no real structure of morality in our world where something from outside of us speaks and says that is good and and that is not. It's just something we determine ourselves. Uh, Those of you who come from other cultures... This has been going on for at least 75 years, really much longer, in Western culture. Uh, Philosophers have cast doubt on whether there is anything from the outside that says this is the way life is meant to be lived, this is true, this is false, this is good, this is bad. It really started with existentialists who, who would argue that there is no real meaning in the world except the meaning to act. It's just choosing to act. Even this, this hit... Bible scholars in Germany, a man named Rudolf Bultmann said the only important thing is for what happens right now. He said even this question that people are often asking, is there meaning in history? Just to ask that question is itself meaningless. Um, Nowadays, of course, uh, that whole way of thinking has flown into what is often called post-modernity. At the heart of that post-modernity, is that there is no objective truth to anything I believe. The the hardcore postmodern view is that, you know, I can get up here in church and and I can confess that there are certain things I think are true and I have the right to do that. But they're only true within my own experience. In other words, I can get up here and tell you this is true for me personally, but I shouldn't impose my belief on other people. Do you know how thoroughly this affects our society? Now, another part of postmodernity is that we need to live in community so we can find communities like this one 
And we can sort of agree, okay, whatever we find in this Bible, we'll agree that that's true and other things are false. But we can hold on to that as a group, as a community. That, that's what we'll hold to. But we aren't supposed to impose uh, our beliefs on other people. Even the, the very definition of the word faith has been changed in our day. Faith ha- has become personal religious belief. That's not what the Bible means by faith. Uh, by faith it means we trust the one and only God who's made himself known. So, so people say to me, well, you can go ahead and believe that, and I hope that works for you. But, but don't impose that upon me or on others. So one of the gurus of um, postmodernity, Stanley Fish, was interviewed after the 9-11 crisis. When, when even, do any of you remember that when, even the media uh, were beginning to ask, maybe, maybe there really is absolute evil in the world? Do you remember that when, when the media were talking about that? So one of the reporters in New York went to Stanley Fish and said, Dr. Fish, has your view about good and evil changed since this random and torturous killing of thousands of people in New York, of children and people all over the world? And Fish said, well, of course not. What happened there proves that I'm right. Now, I'll just paraphrase. He said, "Um, sure, the people who were jumping out of the uh, buildings to their death, they would have said that what happened there was an evil Sure, those who were incinerated would say that there was an evil. Yes, I I agree. Their families would say that that's an evil. But um, he said, just look, in other parts of the world, like parts of the Middle East, there are people cheering and saying that that is a good. He said, what what this proves to us all is that good and evil aren't, aren't real or objective. They're just perceptions that come from one's own point of view. Well, the reporter asked Fish, well, if that's your opinion, then should we just let the perpetrators of this go? Should we try to find them and fight them? And Fish said, well, of course I think we should find them and punish them. Why, said the reporter. (laughs) This makes no sense. And Fish said, I think so because I'm of the America tribe. If my group says it's wrong, then it's wrong to us. And if we have the power, we should go ahead and go after them. I hope you see the implications of that. That if that view is right, then you and I are left to this might makes right philosophy. And in John's day, who had the might? This megalomaniacal emperor who was killing whoever would not worship him. And we are just left open to any kind of evil that those in power might want to do. Now, I I can tell you, I I can imagine some of you saying, Pastor Greg, you were in the academy too long no, no normal people think like that. Let me tell you that in that I know you're wrong. This, this has shaped so much of our society. And, and I feel like I have to speak more clearly about it than I ever have because of that. But just a few weeks ago, you know, I was back in the Appalachian Mountains, my home area, uh, doing the memorial service for my brother-in-law who had passed away. After... Um, after the memorial service was over, I was standing with my sister, and two large people out of the hills came down and said, Pastor, we want to talk to you for a moment. He said, uh, you're living in Southern California, aren't you? Don't you feel like a foreigner there in Southern California? I laughed, and I said, well, yeah, I suppose it is that 
a West Virginian probably could never be quite as sophisticated and, and cool as Southern Californians are supposed to be. <laughs> That's what I said to them. You do look like a pretty cool group, I just have to say. And then they said to me, we don't mean that. We're talking about all those Mexicans and blacks and their kind. They're getting to be more of them and less of us. <laughs> so I said, well, here's what I said. You're right. You should see my church. We have people from everywhere. <laughs> Egypt and Philippines and China and Kenya and Vietnam and Russia and Mexico and Cuba. I love it, I said. But I'm telling you, with hatred in their voices, they said, well, we don't love it. And people who come from where you came from and where we come from, we don't love it. And we're not going to put up with it. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of that conversation. It didn't get any better from there. I'll just, it didn't get any better. All, All I want to say to you is, there are certain things that are right and wrong, not simply because I and my kind think so, but because God has said so, and racism is one of them. And John saw it. He saw if there is no one who is good, who is worthy to open up that scroll, then justice will never prevail. He knew that there would be a loss of direction toward goodness in this world. There would be a loss of purpose. There would be a loss of hope of anything better beyond the grave. He knew it. And he wept. Which brings me to the third point. The lion. Or is it a lamb? There is someone who can and will change things. Do not weep, John. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slaughtered, slain. And it was standing at the center of the throne. I'm telling you, this is a big-time majestic scene. Don't you think so? I hope you try to picture it. If we have any children who come into the service, take out a sheet of paper, try to draw it. Um, Any people who had ever read the Old Testament, as John surely had, knew what was going on when he saw the Lion of Judah. Because the Lion of Judah was the term used for that king coming through the line of David, this messianic king who would have the power to change things and make everything right. What, what is shocking is that John first sees him, verse 5, as a lion, powerful king. But then in verse 6, he's a lamb. And I'm telling you, these aren't two creatures, but one. I went through trying, I googled this, trying to find a picture that I thought would be good. I, they're all bad. So I'm going to show you two, two of them. Oh, see. Let's go ahead and go to the next one. Maybe I'll get in the... Oh, there's another one. Are you awing the lamb or the lion? You see what's wrong with these pictures? The best that we can do in trying to see it is have them as two different creatures. These are not two different creatures. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. It it is one person. This one person is powerful and can make a change. This one person is loving and is willing to be a sacrifice for our sins. This one person is perfect in strength 
and in sacrifice. From this point on in the book of Revelation, usually to be called the Lamb who is worthy. But he's still a lion because he's there at the center of the throne, one with God the Father. The whole point is that Jesus is this one who entered creation. He lived the life that we should have lived. We haven't. Amen? We haven't. And we all need forgiveness. We, uh, evil needs to be paid for, and he did it in our place. He was slaughtered. He was sacrificed in our place. But defeated sin and death through his resurrection I'm telling you picturing this powerful rescuer as a lamb that's nothing human and imagination would have ever come up with do you agree I mean, many people think it's just a fabrication of human imagination all this religion no human being would have come up with this when we try to picture our heroes you know what we do we picture them as as ravenous beasts or birds of prey uh, Russia it, it's a bear France, it's a lion, U.S., it's a bald eagle, all of them ravenous creatures. <laughs> That's what we choose. How many of us choose? Well, how about a lamb to be our rescuer? Especially a slaughtered lamb. And yet that's what God chooses out of his love for us. And he has died in our place and he has triumphed. In which we declare God's purposes will be fulfilled. Forgiveness for our sins is real. Salvation is real. When God is done, it will all be made new. Which brings me to the last point. I call it, you've probably heard me use this phrase before, the unexpected God-glorifying family. It's going to be a part of this thing. And I just, uh, when God's done, this family gathering that we're going to have is going to be better than your Thanksgiving meal. Uh, Believe it or not, it's going to be better even than Christmas. And if you have a painful time, it's going to be really a good Christmas. Here's what we read in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy to open all seven of its seals because you entered into this world and you were slain. And notice this part. With your blood you purchased for God. With his blood he purchased for God what? Okay, we're going to be remembering communion. What did Jesus purchase by willingly shedding his blood? He purchased a people. The cross, when you see it, he purchased one people who had one king, united in worship to this king, people from every tribe, language, and nation. I I hope you will go home and read chapters 4 and 5 and just watch it build. It starts just with four creatures and then other people join in and start singing and praising and it gets bigger and bigger until eventually all creation, as you get to verses 13 and on, uh, all creation is praising God. But you see here what the Word of God focuses on is this. People made in God's image, once broken from God and broken from one another, will no longer be broken. We will be reconciled to one another and to God. And with one voice throughout eternity, we are going to be praising God. Now, sometimes this Revelation 5 text I know bothers people. They say, I don't think I want to be up there playing harps and with wings. Let me tell you, it's just like here, we only have this one time a week where we gather together as a whole family and praise God. This is just one part of heaven, but it's a great part of heaven. 
And then this great part of heaven is going to be better than you could ever imagine it. It's not just going to be floating around. Just just believe that. It, It is going to be greater than anything you could imagine. But one big part of it is all of God's people from every tribe, language, and nation are going to be united in praise to God. Notice this so carefully. Jesus died to ransom worshipers from every people group. He died for that reason. has huge implications for us as a church. If that's true, that if we're going to get involved in what God's doing, we need to get the message of Jesus out to places and to people who've never heard it. Both to our own neighborhood and to the world. And if you wonder why on earth on our budget do we have so much money to try to reach out and carry the gospel, here it is. And we've done this from the very beginning and we must continue to do it. And this is part of the reason we want you to be as generous as you can. We have more people that we want to send both into our neighborhood and into the world. This is God's vision. I'll tell you, we are going to be a place alive. You will be alive as you're able to use whatever God has entrusted to you to further His work in this world. It has a huge implication for how we use the money that is given here. Because we want to be a part of what He is doing. But the other implication I hope is clear to you. This is why we are so passionate about us becoming a church that actually welcomes all people groups. All people. And that actually even now can begin to reflect the global makeup of what Jesus gave His life to bring about. This is why when people come back from being incarcerated and often can't find a community that welcomes them, where is a group of people who all of us have said, oh man, we don't deserve God's mercy, but we have found it in Jesus. Where is a place where a person can find mercy and a community to do life with? Anybody want to tell me? That's what anybody where Jesus reigns must become. This is why we are wanting our church to find a time where we can worship across age lines, across musical taste lines. And and I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you're actually here. I'm so glad you are here. But if you know somebody who says, I follow Jesus, but I don't think I want to worship with the rest of those people in the church, for whatever reason, I don't like the music, for whatever reason, tell them get over it. And get over it fast. Because this is going to be our eternity together. This is our destiny. This is God's purpose. This is why Jesus shed His blood. And at the end, we are going to be gathered all together around the throne, singing together, worthy is this Lamb who was slain to bring about our salvation. Revelation 5 is going to trump whatever excuse anybody brings for not worshiping with the rest of the family. Because worshiping together with the entire family is what you and I were made for. This is what God loves. This is what He asks of us. This is what honors Him. You and I belong to Him and to one another and we need to be worshiping our Lord together. And I mean together. All right. Amen. Okay, I'm going to calm down and become an objective PhD-like pastor from now on. We're now going to go to communion. 
remembering that we have the privilege of being in this unexpected eternal family only because God purchased us at an infinite cost. Do you see what he says? The cost was the blood of his very son. Consider verse 9 so closely. You, you the slaughtered lamb, you purchased for God with your blood people from every people group. Blood-bought. Ethnically diverse but unified. Generationally diverse but unified. Socioeconomically diverse but unified. Worship brings glory to God. I'm just telling you, when you and I give up our own preferences simply out of our love for Jesus and love for His people, and we praise God together with the entire family of God, we discover some beautiful things. When you come simply because you want to worship the One who was slain for your salvation, you will discover the all-satisfying, everlasting, God-centered, Christ-exalting experience of true worship. For this kind of worship is the worship of heaven. So now we're going to take time to remember what it costs us. Jesus said to do it. He said, until I come back again, when you gather as my people, remember what it costs. So I'll ask our stewards to go to the table. Uh, Those who haven't been here with us often, all the way on my right, on your left, If you have a a gluten allergy, for those who are celiac, you can find that it will not be contaminated by gluten. Uh, Otherwise, uh, come to the tables. Uh, This is the Lord's table. So if you know and love the Lord and you are ready to walk with Him, turning your life over to Him, then come and take the elements, then go back to your seat and hold them. We want to receive them together. If you can't come forward, our stewards will be coming out with the elements and they'll bring them to you. So now as we get ready to receive, uh, let me lead us in prayer. So now, Father, oh, we have seen the outcome of this death on a cross that we get to be in your family. Oh, Lord, we do not deserve it. It is your grace. But today we will remember, we will remember and recommit ourselves to you and to your mission in this world. And we will do it because of Jesus. Amen. Come as you are ready.